Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And we we've just been in uh, doing a series on the mire. The you know the pig returns to his mire, and the dog to his vomit. And these were warnings in the New Testament. They, of course, they were actually warnings in the Old Testament as well. That uh, we get entangled again in the elements of the world. We return to the bondage. You know, history repeats itself. And so there was a bondage in Egypt, and there was a bondage in Babylon, and there was a bondage in the city of Cain. And all these bondages come about for particular reasons. And those reasons are not because of the Illuminati or the New World Order or uh, Mr. Soros or the Democrats or the Nazis or other Democratic Socialists or the communists or I don't know who do you want to blame it on um, you know the Freemasons uh, the the Zionists uh, there's always somebody that you can blame things on and uh, and say it's their fault it's not my fault it's their fault and the reality is it is your fault <laughs> it's at least in part it's your fault um, you know it's uh that's just human nature is always looking to blame things on somebody else. Uh, as if somebody else is responsible for the predicament you find yourself in. And uh, and a lot of people say, well, I didn't know. I didn't understand. Well, you know, really, you know, nobody told me, you know, um, uh, they deceived me. They, they, uh, they lied to me. They, you know... Again, this is all excuse-making, and none of it is productive. And, and it may be true that somebody lied to you, and somebody created a system, and somebody incorporated something, and somebody tried to deceive you, but the, the reason you were subject to the deception is because you didn't really want to know the truth. The, the fact is, God is creature of creation that has set the universe in some sort of orderly motion uh, is trying to tell you all the time. You have the mechanisms in you to see what is right and to see what is wrong. We call it the tree of life. It will tell you what is right and what is wrong. You keep, because of your vanity, you keep eating of the tree of knowledge. And you think, unless somebody spells it out and explains it to me piece by piece, I'm not going to understand the message of, you know, truth. I'm not, you know, I have to study to show myself approved. You know, that, I love that. I even quote that. But that's not actually what the original text says. I mean, study is fine. But that's not how you're going to know. I, I I know lots of people who've spent their whole life studying. They haven't got a clue what's true. They're completely self-deceived. And and that's the key word, self-deceived. And we've been fooled. We've been brought back into the elements of the world. We've, you know, like the pig to the mire and the dog to his vomit. We've gotten re-entangled again in those same civil systems that were set up by Pharaoh and set up by... Nimrod and set up by Cain and set up by Caesars of the world. 
And, and we've been suckered back into those systems and you're back in bondage again. But the reason you're in bondage is, is not what everybody would like to think. It's the inconvenient truth that keeps us from seeing what actually has brought us into bondage. And, you know, I, I actually just started creating a page uh, at our Preparing You site. Uh, yesterday, or maybe late last night, sometime between, uh, you know, dark and morning. Uh, and it, it's called Be Not, because I noticed how many times Jesus said, Be not, be not afraid, be not this, be not that. Be, he's, those are instructive words, and it's right in line with the Ten Commandments, which is, Thou shalt not. <laughs> which is very similar to be not. And that is uh, something that we're, we probably will do a study on, the be not series, <laughs> and see how many of these things that Jesus said to be not, and you are. You see, the reason you are in bondage, and we say this on our page on bondage, <laughs> uh, the reason you are in bondage is because of covetousness. It says, through covetousness you will be made merchandise. Through covetousness you will curse your children. It's through covetousness that you keep being brought back to the mire. You you desire something of your neighbors. You know, you desire something at the expense of your neighbors. And, and that's covetousness. You know, uh, uh, George Carlin, the comedian... Uh, did a whole skit on coveting. Coveting is good because without coveting, you wouldn't, you know, go to work and you wouldn't try to improve yourself and get a better house and a better car. But that's not coveting. Coveting, you know, if I if I see you have a beautiful, intelligent wife and I say, boy, someday when I grow up, I want to have a beautiful and intelligent wife like that, a virtuous woman, more precious than a ruby, as Proverbs says. That's not coveting. That's just good sense. Uh, coveting is when I say, I want to have your wife. <laughs> I want to have a wife by taking away from you. Uh, that, that's a different kind. That's coveting. You know, if you have a nice car, nice pickup, nice house, and I say, boy, I'd like to have a house like that someday. That's not coveting. Uh, that, Coveting is when I want to have your house. Or I want to have, I want to make you buy me a house. You know, like socialists. They want somebody else to buy them a house. Somebody else to provide them with social security. Somebody else to pay them when they are not working. And they are absolutely content with forcing their neighbor to contribute to their welfare. That's coveting. And it's through that coveting that you're made merchandise. There's other things that you can add to that list besides coveting, which of course are almost always encompassing the idea of coveting, which is to be slothful. The slothful shall be under tribute, it says in the Bible. I mean, they're telling you how it works. Well, the slothful are almost always also coveting. <laughs> if they're just lazy and sitting around on the porch and, uh, you know, that's one thing. They're not going to get 
very far that way, but they're probably going to end up in trouble financially and what have you. But then when they want to get out of trouble, they could get busy and start working. Or they could covet their neighbor's goods. <laughs> and that's exactly whatever. So we're going back to the coveting. Avarice, uh, pride, wantonness. All those things lead to coveting. Desiring something at the expense of your neighbor. Today, we're having, well, not actually this day, but, you know, at this season in the United States, they're having elections. They're probably having elections in a lot of countries. And there's always a socialist party that is appealing to the masses to get more stuff. They want to have more stuff at the expense of their neighbor. They want to take away from somebody else. Oh, they excuse it. Well, it's, you know, there are, it's our rich neighbors. You know, it's everybody who's got more than me and I don't have anything because I'm slothful and avarice. And, you know, but I want to have more stuff. And I don't have enough stuff. And so I want somebody else to pay for it and buy my stuff. It's like pro-choice people. I just put up a page on abortion. You know, 30% of the pregnancies in Europe end in abortion. One-third of everybody who gets a pregnant, you know, aborts the baby. Now, this has been going on for a while now in Europe. And so what's happening in Europe, their birth rate is below a sustainable birth rate. They are losing their population. The, 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 the Germans, the Swedes, the Norwegians, the, even the French, uh, are losing their population because their birth rate is so low. And one of the reasons their birth rate is so low is because they kill 30% of the children that are pregnant in the wombs of their daughters. They kill them. They abort them. And so, therefore, their birth rate is extremely low. Now, there's the, the number of pregnancies are low, too. But it isn't... That, that, that could have a number of reasons. One is they're better at birth control. I, I doubt they're less promiscuous. They're probably just as promiscuous as they've ever been. Maybe more so in this day and age. It's hard to say. Certainly they are promiscuous. And even with depot shots and, and the pill and, and contraceptives, they're still, their birth rate is, is remarkably low. But then 30% of the times that they get pregnant, they kill the fetus. And so therefore, their actual birth rate is very low. And so they need more people because the socialist state needs workers. They're going to need another generation of workers and they're not producing it themselves. I mean, they could be, but they're killing their future in the wombs of their daughters. And um, so therefore, their political regimes that are ruling over them, making laws for them, say, we've got to let in immigrants. To be the workforce. Because we're not giving birth to enough children. Well, you could have been, but you killed them. And so you judge that was okay. Because you believe in pro-choice, right? No, you don't believe in pro-choice. I'll t get to that in a minute. But you call it pro-choice. Because that sounds good. Pro-choice. We're pro-liberty, pro you know, kind of choice. And freedom. And 
all this stuff. Really, you didn't give the fetus any choice. So you're not really pro-choice. You're pro what you want. Not only that, but you're, you're going to make your neighbor who doesn't believe in abortion pay for your abortion. And, and you're not going to give them any choice in the matter. You're going to make them pay for your abortion. So you don't believe in it. You're not pro-choice. <laughs> you're just selfish. That's it. You're just totally, unequivocally, selfish pig. <laughs> and so, that's why you're back in the mire. So you're... Your leaders are now saying, bring in immigrants. And so they open the door to a lot of immigrants. And some of the immigrants are really nice people and hardworking people. And, and they came in. Some of them brought their own culture and their own religions and their own ideas. But they, they did go to work. And it wasn't enough. So now they're bringing in more. And they got kind of an open door policy. That, uh, there's some guys trying to cl- slam it shut. But the... The people that are coming in are not all, you know, hard-working immigrants. Some of them are thieves and dregs of society in North Africa and maybe even Syria. And, I mean, there's some, you know, immigrants is not a species, you know. It's not like all immigrants are made alike. Some of them are, you know, legitimately fleeing persecution and they're good, hard-working, decent people. And some of them are just flat-out crooks. Thieves, robbers, rapists, degenerates of a society that were glad to see them go. And, you know, rape is, you know, thousands and thousands of European girls have been raped now. To death. Gang raped. Brutally. Uh, children are being raped. Uh, people, people's houses and stores are being broken into. Riots in the streets. Areas of, of, you know, Sweden and Norway and stuff where people can't even go anymore because it's too dangerous. You know, it's, it's getting to the point that it's almost as dangerous for a European, and it's going to get to this point, just to let you know. This is the way it works in, in nature. It's going to be as dangerous for a European as it is for the fetus of Europeans. Which is pretty dangerous, considering that 30% of the fetuses of Europeans are killed by the, their host, <laughs> their mothers. <laughs> They're killed by them. They abort them. And so, they choose death, you know. That's their pro-choice. They choose to kill the baby in their womb. Don't give the baby a choice. Just kill it. And now they're reaping the whirlwind. Because you're going to see way more violence in Europe than you presently see. Because when you start pushing back, you're going to see, you're going to see totalitarianism rise up. And you're going to see uh, I mean, you're going to see uh, probably chemical warfare uh, against um, the people of Europe as these violent immigrants, not all immigrants, but the violent ones, uh, begin to fight back. And you're going to see 
horrible abuses and you're going to see a bloody, bloody war because you're already seeing the, the kind of Nazi faction rising up to fight back against this. And so now you've got millions of people come in there and they're not going to be always uh, careful about the good immigrants versus the bad immigrants. They're just going to lump them all together and they're going to attack them and they're going to fight back and you're going to have your dialectic, your violent dialectic where they're fighting each other. And that's what they deserve. And unfortunately, a lot of decent people are going to be hurt. Uh, a lot of people who didn't kill the fetuses in their wombs will be hurt. A lot of those fetuses that were born are going to be hurt. And there's going to be a bloodbath. And uh, so now let's go to America. What's happening in America? Now, you know, it's it's been since about 1994. I think since America had 30% of the of uh, you know I, I guess it would be about uh, 340 abortions for every thousand pregnancies um, I don't know if that's per pregnancy or per birth but uh, anyway that figure has actually been dropping in America we're down to about 210 abortions per thousand. Uh, not good figure, though. It's still, you know, 20% um, are being killed in the womb by people who say they're pro-choice but don't want to give the fetus a choice. And, uh, and don't want to give us a choice about whether or not we should have to be forced to finance their abortion. Because they don't give us a choice on that. Because they're not pro-choice. They're pro-self. They're selfish people. The, that's just the way it is. And, and uh, But the lower abortion rate is probably due, again, to things like depot shots and birth control and the pill. And actually, it could even be uh, a low sperm count uh, because of other things that people are consuming, you know. Um, even in Europe, uh, they're seeing, uh, you know, th there's not a lot of statistics here. I mean, if you go to the dairy farms, we know that uh, there's a low birth rate due to uh, the introduction of GMOs into their diet. You know, uh, dairy farmers were going completely out of business because the dairy cows weren't getting pregnant. And uh, they took the GMOs out of their diet and immediately the birth rate started going up. So there's very clearly a connection and of course everybody's eating GMOs just now uh, about in uh, America and this has, that's the tip of the iceberg there's all kinds of other chemicals in our diet now that are probably poisoning us but we know in, in parts of Europe France uh, there's a 30% decrease in the sperm count um, that's, uh, that's not good uh, because in some of these countries, they've outlawed GMOs, so that, that there's other factors. Many of the European countries, they uh, they put something in the plastic so the plastic does not break down and produce chemicals that work as artificial estrogen. Uh, America doesn't do that, so if you're drinking out of a plastic bottle, your kids are probably getting uh, imbalance in what they think is estrogen in their body, which is causing raising havoc. So there's all kinds of things that could be affecting that birth rate, that abortion rate. 
but the American uh, birth rate is way down too. So it's going to be needing immigrants to keep the ball rolling. And unfortunately, a lot of the immigrants that come don't come with the same work ethic that the immigrants came with way back in earlier America. You know, uh, and, and the, you know, I could say all kinds of things about that, but we'll we'll get back on the topic of the point is that we're in this mire, and there's a number of choices that we've made to bring us into this mire, and they all kind of trace back to selfishness, and we see that selfishness in the form of covetousness, wanting freebies. Uh, free bread, circuses, free education, free health care, at the expense of somebody else who we don't really care about. So really, what it comes down to is that we're back in bondage because we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. We love ourselves more than our neighbor. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. So if we don't love our neighbor as ourselves, we know we're not Christians, right? Uh, we, We may be, you know, calling ourselves Christians. We may say you know, Lord, Lord, we say we believe in Jesus, but if you if you are taking a bite out of your neighbor to get a benefit, if you're coveting your neighbor's goods, then you're not a Christian. You're not following Christ. You don't believe in Christ. You believe in the idea that you're saved, but because you want to believe in a fictitious Christ in your own mind, but you don't. You're the ones that Jesus is going to say, "Get ye from me, ye workers of iniquity." You're going to think you're Christians. You're going to think you did all these good things in his name, but you're not. You're going to, you're going to study and study and study to show yourself approved. And you're going to have all this information about doctrine and, and maybe even study a little Hebrew and Greek and, and, you know, you memorize phrases out of the Bible that are convenient, but you don't really know Jesus. Because you, you don't have the character of Jesus. You're not doing things in the name of Jesus. I mean, you're using his name, but it's in vain. Because you're still a worker of iniquity. And you can be a worker of iniquity even if you don't apply for those benefits. Because you're not coming in the name of Christ unless you become that benefactor who does not exercise authority. Until you actually... Love is an action word. It's, you can't love somebody sitting in a pew. You can't love somebody just sitting there reading your Bible. Now, let's go back to that study to show yourself approved. The word there in the Greek that we see translated study to show thyself approved is not the word for study. As a matter of fact, it's not translated. That particular word in the Greek is not translated study anywhere else in the Bible. It's normally translated diligent. In other words, be diligent to show thyself approved. So, your studying is not being diligent. That's just thinking about God. Thinking about, you know, pretend, you could be pretending. Like I say, lots of people study, they don't come to the same conclusions. Because it's not written on their hearts to do the truth. So, what are we supposed to be diligent about? What What is the diligent? Well, we're going to get to that. And we're going to show you the way out of the mire when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Stay tuned.
Okay, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Now, we we were talking about um, this uh, returning to the mire and how do we get back out of the mire. And uh, I I talked a little bit about abortion. I wanted to add that if you are a lady who's had an abortion in the past and you're now thinking uh, that somehow or other you're condemned because of that. That's not the message here. I'm not trying to condemn people. I'm trying to awaken people. That there are repercussions for what you choose to do or choose not to do. People who choose, you can say, well, they chose to have an abortion. Well, they chose not to raise the child. So almost every choice you make is both a negative and a positive choice in the sense that you chose to do this or do this instead of that. And so therefore you chose not to do that, but to do this instead. So now anyway, you have an abortion in your past. The the beautiful thing about the universe as God created it is that repentance can restore you to what you once were. We all have DNA in our bodies and most of that DNA or much of that DNA, almost half in most cases, is not turned on. It doesn't do anything. It's there. It requires epigenetic factors to turn on that DNA. And when you turn on that DNA, all kinds, you know, we just talked on an earlier show about the fact that children born with an inherited birth defect where they have the birth defect. Nursed by a mother who does not have that birth defect in her genetics. The child is healed of a genetic birth defect. It goes away. And how is that possible? Because there are genetic epigenetic materials in the breast milk, the wet nurse that turns on DNA and overcomes a birth defect. Now, it may not happen in every case, but they have found cases where this has happened. The reality is repentance can restore all. There may be some recompense, you know, but, you know, the woman at the well had had five husbands. She, she had, you know, five failed marriages kind of a pattern. You know, I know somebody in our network who's breaking up another home. She's broke up homes before. She's depended upon a male figure and she usually steals one from somebody else's marriage. And that's a pattern in her life. That can change. That pattern can change just like the DNA can be turned on or turned off by epigenetic, extra epi, uh, is the Greek word. It's this extra genetics. So by repenting and returning to the ways of God, you can overcome the detrimental or devastating or or, uh, uh, distasteful, destructive pattern that you are going down the road on because of choices that you've made in the past. You can turn that all around. You can change that. Just the same as you can change the genetics in a person. Turn on certain genes. Turn off certain genes. 
So anyway, we're in bondage because of covetousness, which is selfishness. Our selfishness, you know, and, and you know, like abortion is a selfish act. Uh, stealing somebody else's husband, selfish act. And it sets, I mean, it affects everything in your body. It affects your health. It affects your DNA. Because these emotional choices, spiritual choices that you make, are turning on and off DNA, causing disease. And, you know, you want to break the bonds with that, that, that history. So that the sins of the father and the mother are not visited upon the children, which is you. So, how do you do this? You can't save yourself. You can't just turn these things on with positive thinking. You have to repent. You have to change the way you're thinking. Your mind has to be changed. Now, you can you, with your own knowledge and study, can you change your mind? No, your mind has to be changed by an external force uh, that is pure, more virtuous, filled with life. We call this force God. This, This being that is a fruitful being that creates heaven and earth, sets life in motion. This complex system, we call that God. You have to receive the mind of God, the mind of Christ, the character of Christ, the name of Christ. You have to be like him, not act like him, but be like he is. Okay, so he says, repent, change your thinking, and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I says, you're going to seek that, you're going to desire that, you're going to look to that. Well, what does that look like? And, and well, it's like it looks like somebody who's being charitable instead of covetous. Instead of wanting what belongs to somebody else, you're going to actually want to give. Instead of wanting to take, you're going to want to give. See, it's not the you know to say I don't want their benefits. That's not. That's not repentance. You're just saying, I don't want their benefits. You have to want to become the benefit. In other words, you have to be charitable, change directions and move in this other direction, rather than covet your neighbor's goods. You have to be diligent instead of be slothful. There there you have it. Study, be diligent to show thyself approved. Instead, as, as countering sloth, laziness. By being generous instead of avarice. Instead of what you want, you're concerned about what others want. When you gather together, you don't come together to get something from everybody else. You know, I don't like going to that congregation because it doesn't feel rewarding to me when I'm there. I don't get anything out of it. I come to get something out of it. No, that's, that's not why you come to get. That's not coming in the name of Christ. Christ didn't come to get something out of you. He came to give life by laying down his life. So, is that why you're gathering in a congregation? To be generous or to get something out of it? I don't get anything out of going to that church, so I don't go anymore. Well, 
you're not going for the right reason. Christ, Christ didn't say, well, you know, I'm not getting anything out of this whole crucifixion thing. I'm leaving. He came. He's showing you how it works in the universe. <laughs> you can't be selfish and expect to have life more abundant. You know, I mean, that's what they did in Europe. They all became socialist states. And socialism breeds infertility. It breeds a low birth rate. You think, well, socialism, the more kids I have, the more benefits I get. No, if you're going to get adequate benefits not having a lot of kids, why have a lot of kids? I mean, you don't have kids because you hope they will take care of you someday. You don't pour out your life and your children hoping that they will care about you and, you know, keep the commandments, which is... For, according to however you calculate it. But anyway, the uh, honor thy father and thy mother, which means to fatten thy father and thy mother less, so that your days will be long upon the land. Because if you don't take care of your father and your mother, why in the world would your kids take care of you? They'll do like you did. You do no more out for your parents. You've got social security. You don't need that. You don't need your parents. You don't need to take care of your parents. Government will take care of your parents, right? That's what the Corbin of the Pharisees was. It was making the word of God to none effect. You have to be generous and without this avarice. You have to be humble rather than proud. People study and study and study and they're so proud of all the information they get in their heads. And they're always going to tell people this, that, and the other thing. About what they've learned. But what are they doing? Nothing. Very little. Oh, they do a little. They always do something. because They have this token. Well, look, I did this. I helped out this person. You have to be merciful. As opposed to wanted. You know, I I talked to somebody who, who, who. In the ministry. Who just pours out their life all the time has very little life of their own. And it's exhausting. And uh, and, and you know that it's a, it's a test uh, for them. And, you know, just like Christ was tested, we're tested. And they would like to see other people, you know, pouring out their life too. I mean, you know, many hands makes the work lighter. But they they see congregations that give very little. Oh, they always just have enough for themselves. But they're, they're, there's no fasting where they say, well, I'm just going to do without, you know. Uh, actually, you know, a guy who was uh, make, giving money to a lady on the street corner. And the way he got, he, everything was budgeted. He wasn't making a lot of money. He would skip lunch. Instead of buying his lunch, he would skip lunch and take that money and give to the lady. He was doing this every day. And then he discovered that she had a nicer car than him. She had a nicer home than him. She was just out begging to pick up extra spending money and was getting a lot because she was an old lady and everybody had pity on her. But she didn't need the money. She was getting government checks, living in the house... She was just defrauding the people. And he was just he was just livid. I've been going without lunch. Well, you know, God will take that into consideration. You know, you don't give to the poor 
to save them. You give to the poor to save yourself. <laughs> save your own soul. <coughs> but hopefully, hopefully, he's going to be a little bit smarter in the future about his giving. Which is another reason why you gather together. Because there are charlatans out there. I, I don't give to people on the street most of the time. You know, I've I've had a few guys who said that they're hungry and stuff, and so I offer to buy them food, but I don't give them money. Now I'm not I'm not saying you shouldn't, but you need to be wise about it. You need to find out. You know, you you want to get that guy off the street. You want to actually help him, strengthen him as an individual. And if he doesn't want that, well, then you probably shouldn't give to him. You should use your resources to help those deserving poor who really want to change, want to do something, who aren't slothful and covetous themselves, who aren't selfish. Maybe they need to wallow around in the mire. And here you are giving them money, making them comfortable in their sloth. You don't want to do that. You have to be very careful about your charity, but you need to be very, very charitable to save your soul. Because sacrifice draws you near to the character of Christ. Selfishness pushes you farther away. So anyway, you have to be charitable instead of covetous, diligent instead of slothful, generous instead of avarice, hum- Humility instead of being proud and arrogant. Merciful instead of, you know, what you want. And then God will hear you. Because he says that if you're going to be these other things, when you cry out, I will not hear you. But if you start turning around and doing the... And you won't do them right all the time. You'll still be... At times, you'll still be slothful. But you'll have... You'll have the dialectic where it needs to be. You'll be seeking virtue. So what does that look like? And how does that all function in the kingdom? I mean, what's the actual mechanics? And that's what people... You know, I've had somebody write me and, and they've been studying the kingdom come. And they wanted to know how some of this this worked. You know, and what where I got some of these things in in the Bible. They they want to understand, you know. They want they want to re- study, <laughs> be diligent. <laughs> they want to study so that they know the truth. Well, the fact is, is that when I write these books, I put in what God gives me. I already see the kingdom. I understand how it works in, in the spirit. But to see the particulars and how it functions and how the Old Testament and the New Testament is telling us how it works. Sometimes I can spell that out. And I'm not going to spell it out in absolute detail. But I'm going to give you enough information so that you can begin to understand how the kingdom of God works. I mean, Jesus says, I appoint unto you a kingdom. He says, I'm going to take the kingdom away from these guys who already had it from generation to generation, the Pharisees. But they had started covetous practices that were making the word of God to none effect. They were forcing offerings, and John the Baptist said, and you know, they said until John the Baptist, everybody thought it was good to force the offerings to provide for this kingdom of heaven, this, this, this utopia kingdom. But John the Baptist said, no, do it by faith, hope, and charity. That's what he said. That's what Christ said. That's what Paul said. 
But the modern Christian says, no, you can do it through government. You can take care of the needs of one another through government. You can force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. As long as you do it through government. And the church doesn't do that anymore. Church is just supposed to make you feel good. So that's why you got people going to church and said, I like that church. I really always feel good after I go to that church. That's why your most successful preachers don't even talk about the Bible. They're, they're just motivational speakers trying to make you feel good. And people love it. They go there. And he's got money coming out of the ears. Millionaire. There's a lot of money in Satan's work. Lulling the people into sleep. Lulling them into the delusion that they're saved already just because they thought a thought. That they can be workers of iniquity and still be saved. No, they can't be. And they don't really believe in the real Christ. They believe in a false image of Christ that is being promoted by people who are out to get rich. So how was the early church organized? Uh, well, actually, uh, in exactly the same way as the Orthodox Church continues to this day. Is that is that the case? You know what you know what we call the Orthodox Church. You know, I heard uh, Judge uh, Napolitano referring to himself as an Orthodox Christian or Catholic, but he says with a small O. <laughs> it's not Eastern Orthodox. He's a pre-Vatican II Catholic. He's a very interesting guy, um, and and you know I, actually I put a web page up with a couple of his videos because he's very articulate. And uh, studied a lot. <laughs> and uh, anyway, it, it's, it can be worth listening to what he has to say. But the, the Catholic Church is not doing what the first century church did. The Protestant churches aren't doing what the first century church did. Now, the ch- Protestant churches used to, to some degree, do very much what the first century church did. And the Catholic Church used to what we know as the Catholic Church. I mean, what we know as the Catholic Church now didn't really come about uh, to the extent that you see it today until around 900 or 1000 A.D. It has a history that goes way back, but uh, it really doesn't go back much farther than Constantine. But the principles that you see them using go back clean to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It depends on what part of Catholicism you want to look at. But I don't want to pick on Catholicism and I don't want to pick on Protestantism, whatever that is. That's that's a pretty wide-ranging... You know, there's a lot of people who call themselves Protestants and there's like 40,000 different denominations. Um, but what we really want to look at is that early church. What was it doing? How did it operate? Because we're back in the same mire. We're, we've returned to the same mire. So we, we need to know what Christ was actually telling his disciples to do when he said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you guys, the Pharisees. I'm going to appoint it to another group that will bear fruit. And then he says later that talking to his little flock, I'm going, it is my pleasure to appoint unto you a kingdom. And then later on he says, I appoint unto you a kingdom. But he said prior to that, but you're not to be like the governments of the Gentiles, the princes of the Gentiles, the prime ministers and presidents of the Gentiles. 
that you're you're to be benefactors, but you're not to be benefactors who exercise authority one over the other. Uh, there was somebody who asked that question: How did the early church, um, Christian church, how was it organized? And he said, it was his words, in exactly the same way as the Orthodox Church continues to this day. That's not true. It's simply not true. He says, holding church councils and synods, the apostles, bishops, and elders, priests, um, to consider theological matters. And he uses Acts 15, um, 6 to uh, use that to describe that that's exactly what they do today. But if you read uh, Acts 15, you go back to the beginning. It says a certain man which uh, came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Uh, so in this issue, uh, it says, When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain elders of them should go to Jerusalem unto the apostles, who are still around, and the elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through uh, Phoenicia and uh, Samaria, uh, declaring the conversation of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and the elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. And everybody was happy about that. But anyway, it was in verse 6. Well, let's go back to verse 5. He says, But therefore rose up a certain sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, this is a sect of Pharisees who are evidently Christians. Okay, that, that's interesting. And they're saying, you know, because you have to remember the apostles are working in Jerusalem. They're actually working daily in the temple. The temple was a government building. All social welfare in Judea, was run through the temple. You had to be registered with the temple and all this kind of stuff. Now, Jesus Christ was anointed the king. He was uh, proclaimed the king by the majority of the people. Uh, Herod literally recognized, Herod Antipas recognized him as king. Herod Antipas was not the king in Jerusalem. Nobody sat on that throne until Jesus came in and was hailed as the highest son of David. I mean, this is in the record. Highest son of David, that's the king. He's doing the things that the king, only the king could do, which is firing the money changers, which are the porters of the temple. He's doing that. And then the Sanhedrin comes along and wants to try him and convict him and crucify him. But even Pontius Pilate says, this is the king of the Jews. He rules as the king of the Jews, but he let them decide and they decided to have him crucified. This is the Sanhedrin. Now, we know there were some in the Sanhedrin that didn't want to see Christ crucified, but, you know, majority rules. It's going to rule in your country and they're going to elect somebody who's going to be an extremely socialist guy. And it's just a question of socialist 
extremely, extremely socialist or just generally, generally socialist. <laughs> but you're all on that same kind of side of the equation of coveting your neighbor's goods. But anyway, that Sanhedrin, they didn't like the fact that Jesus had fired the money changers. The soldiers didn't like the fact that there cannot be a standing army in Jerusalem. That they, they, they were always supported by a local militia. United together. And so this is why they had to crucify Christ. But here you have some Pharisees that were actually became Christians and now want everybody to be circumcised. And they had a council to decide. And we're going to talk about that in the next show coming up in a few moments so stay tuned You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. We're talking about how to get out of the mire and uh, how the early church was instrumental in doing that. How was that early church organized? And this one individual thought that, well, it's just like today. Uh, church councils, synods, apostles, uh, and elders get together and decide theological matters. If they're deciding theological matters, are they exercising authority one over the other? Now, the, the case that was brought up was that some Pharisees who had become Christians who are now dependent upon the temple as constructed through living stones, still meeting in the actual physical temple built by Herod, 
working daily in there, providing the Corbin through faith, hope, and charity rather than compelled offerings, not forcing the contributions of the people as Herod had done, but um, doing it through faith, hope, and charity as John the Baptist and Jesus and Paul said we should do it. And Peter said we should do it. Not coveting one another's goods through the agency of the government, but doing it all through free will offerings. And the church itself owned all things in common. And the church itself were these ministers who had met the qualifications of Christ through discipleship, uh, through giving up everything they owned and belonging as a brethren to Christ. This is what they did. I mean, Jesus said, if you want to be one of my disciples, one of my students, to study to be the ministers that I am going to appoint the kingdom to, my little flock, you have to give up everything you own. And what he was doing was he saying the same thing that Moses had said to the Levites. That the Levites had no inheritance in the land. They had land, but they owned it all in common. They didn't, they couldn't, you couldn't buy a Levite's land from a Levite without some other Levite coming and saying, I want it back. And uh, they could do that any time. They could redeem the land any time. So, you did, they didn't have to wait seven years or anything like that till the contract was up. They can just come and redeem the land. And so that was because Levites didn't own the land as an inheritance. They couldn't sell it. Well, the fact is you don't own the land today. You have legal title and you're all back in a bondage. And the priests of this society are thinking very much like the fallen Pharisees of yesterday. And they will loan you money at interest and they will keep you in bondage forever because they don't consider you the faithful. And in truth, you're not. (laughs) You're not the faithful. You haven't been doing things the way the first century church did at all. So anyway, this is what, you know, we spell out and we show you in, in Thy Kingdom Comes and, and, and the book Covenants of the Gods is that you've strayed from the way of the prophets. You've done, you've broken every commandment in the book. And you do it regularly. And you do it because your preacher says it's okay to do it. It's not okay to do it. But the way back is to change your thinking. And back in those lines that we talked about at the beginning of the last show. You have to stop thinking in covetous ways. But in charitable ways. And that's of course what John the Baptist said. If you have two coats and your neighbor has none, share. Do the same in meat. So this is he's telling you how to run the welfare of your society. Because if you got the baptism of Herod, you would be registered in his temple and you would have to pay in. And they would have lots of money to take care of the welfare of your parents, of the blind, of whoever. But by doing it through force rather than through charity, you're going to make the word of God to none effect. And this is what Christ said. It's really very simple. You have to deny some of the basic things. And, of course, this is what we're showing you. We're laying out the proof so that you can, you can kind of pry yourself out of the strong delusion that you have been following Christ when you actually have not been. Now, I'm going to assume that many of you really want to follow Christ and just nobody has told you. Some of you will recognize and say, you know, he's right. And some of you, with the same amount of information, will deny that I'm telling you the truth. 
and you will continue in your sinful ways. And that's because it's not given unto you to know except by God. I can explain it a hundred different ways. I can prove all kinds of things. But if you don't want to believe the truth, you can find excuses why you don't have to follow the ways of Christ. So anyway, in verse 6 it says the apostle of this uh, uh, Acts 15. The apostles and elders came together. For to consider of this matter, of whether everybody had to get circumcised or not. And when there had been much disputing, I mean, they're arguing, they're talking about this. Peter rose up and said unto them, men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago, God made a choice amongst us. That the Gentiles, by my mouth, he says, it's Peter. It's not Everybody talks about Paul being the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter, by my mouth, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. And so, this giving of the Holy Ghost, this is a big deal. Uh, this is not easily received, this Holy Ghost thing. Because you you have to clean your temple out of a lot of the things that you have in there that really aren't of Christ. And if you try to live by faith, hope, and charity, that's a good scrub brush for your temple. Because you're going to come face to face with your selfishness. But anyway, in verse 9 he goes on to say, And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So he's saying... Already with Peter, the Gentiles were coming into the fold. But now this one group of Pharisees, former Pharisees, now uh, supposedly Christians, are saying, no, you have to follow all these Pharisaical rules. And, you know, old habits are hard to break. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Now, this whole circumcision thing, uh, this whole cir- circumcision thing was uh, really keeping the riffraff. I mean, you had to be sincere if you were going <laughs> to want to be a, an Israelite. You couldn't just, you know, go get dunked in water. You had to really be sincere because circumcision is not an easy thing. Especially if you're already an adult and you're converting. That being said, baptism, according to John the Baptist, was not easy either. Because John the Baptist says, now if you want benefits, if you want to be taken care of by government, by the government of God, you're going to have to do it by faith, hope, and charity. You're going to have to have real faith. You're going to have to give up. You're not going to be able to take benefits from men who exercise authority. This is what John the Baptist was saying with his baptism. They were going to have to stop taking the free bread benefits, which also included cheese and sometimes money, that they were getting out of the temple to take care of the needy of their society. The needy of their society was going to have to start taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. This is what John the Baptist is saying. It's what Christ was saying. It's what they were doing. When Everybody who got the baptism of Christ at Pentecost, 
was cast out by the rule. That says it right there in the Bible. They were cast out of the synagogue, which is where they ran their social welfare through the synagogue. So they weren't going to get any more social security. They weren't going to get any more, you know, uh, funds and food because they were blind or they were lame or they, you know, they were, their, their parents weren't going to get any more social security, uh, money. They weren't, now they were going to have to do aught for their parents. They were going to have to take care of their parents. They were going to have to take care of their blind. They were going to have to take care of their indigent. <coughs> they were going to have to, uh, take care of one another. By charity. Wow. Bummer. Now, what, what, what if, if you get baptized today in the modern church, you could get baptized and still go down and collect all the benefits you want from men who exercise authority one over the other, even though Christ said it was not to be that way with you. But the modern church says, oh, that's okay. You, you go take all those benefits. You just come to church for singing and, you know, feeling good. And, and you can take, you can have men go out and force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. I mean, they can take guns out and, and make your neighbors contribute. And if they, your neighbor doesn't want to contribute, you can take their home away from them. You can put them in jail. Uh, you can, you know, incarcerate them, fine them. Because that's what benefactors who exercise authority do. But see, Christians aren't that way. But you are. So you're not a Christian. So now am I saying get out of the system? No, I'm saying repent. Start becoming the system of Christ. Start taking, take the burden off your bankrupt system. Start taking care of your parents yourself. Start taking care of the weak, the sick, the indigent yourself. Start creating that society that operates by faith, hope, and charity alone. In pure religion. That's what I'm saying. So when that guy says. The the modern church does things like the early church. They get together and have these synods. Well they did get together. And they decided that no they didn't have to get. Circumcised. But they, they do talk about a circumcision of the heart. And that circumcision of the heart was. Is that you had to start taking care. Of one another. You know and, and they go on. And declared, if you go all the way down, we won't read everything in here, but it says in, uh, let's start at verse 17, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, said the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works and from the beginning of the world. Therefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. Now, so he's saying, let's not give them this circumcision. That's a hard thing to do. And and, and this, this is actually, I believe, James talking about this. That James answered, men and brethren, hearken unto me. So that, that he did, said that back in verse 13. He goes on to say, but that we write unto them He's going to write to these Gentiles that they abstain from pollutions of idols, from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. Now, all those things he just listed off there are the same thing. He's just talking about them a little bit different perspective. 
the pollution of idols. He's talking about, see, all these temples. And you go to our page on temples and find out what they were doing in these pagan temples. This is where they were running their welfare systems. Their Corbin that was making the word of God did not affect. This is where you, you went to a little building next to the temple to get your free bread. Your free wine. Your free cheese. You know, your social welfare. That's what you went there to get it because that's where the funds went. That's why you had to register with those temples. You know, you, you register your children with those temples. Temple of Saturn. That was the Bureau of Vital Statistics. So that you could get your benefits. Well, those benefits are the pollution of idols. The fornication with, you know, the, the Parthenon. Uh, you know, the virgin of the Parthenon. <laughs> uh, these temples. He's, James in a particular uh, way that Israelites thought, Jews thought, is using metaphors here. Things strangled from blood. What? This whole strangling, that's a metaphor for forcing, you know, grab you by the throat and forcing you to contribute. It's time to contribute. Give us what we want. Yeah, I mean, we use that all the time. The economy, the taxes are strangling me. Absolutely. They don't actually have their fingers around the throat. It's a metaphor. You know, you can't get blood out of a turnip. From blood, he says, and from blood, strangled and from blood. You're not to eat meat with blood in it. What's that? That's what the governments who exercise force are taking the blood of your neighbor to taking a bite out of your neighbor to provide you with benefits. So he's saying you don't have to get circumcised, but you cannot be taking the benefits from these pagan temples that are forcing the contributions of the people by strangulation and by taking the blood of the living. That's what he's talking about. Fornicating with them. Interacting with them. Why is James saying this? James is the guy who talks about pure religion. Visiting the widows and orphans, taking care of the needy of your society, unspotted by the constitutional order and systems of governments of the world and their pagan temples that force the contributions of the people. That's very different than what the modern Christian is doing. You can join all kinds of churches and still go to men who call themselves benefactors and apply for benefits. Now, am I telling you, you can't go get the, you know, got to stop receiving a social security check, stop taking these benefits, uh, stop sending your kids to public school. Well, yeah, but you, I'm not telling you to go cold turkey. I'm telling you to start homeschooling. Start learning how to take care of the elderly in your own homes. Every home should be putting on an extra room to take care of somebody in their community. Used to be, yeah, actually, I came across a deal where it's probably around 600 or 880. Uh, it, was, it was King Eckbart uh, who made a proclamation that every 10 families, and this is actually in his proclamation, had to take care of at least one poor person. So if there was no poor in those 10 families... They had to find, you know, get out there and find a poor person and take care of somebody in need. And 
you you could pick who you're going to help. You I mean this guy over here who's a slob and he, he drinks and he beats his wife and everything. Well, you don't have to take care of him. You got to find somebody you think is worthy to take care of him, and then take care of them in a manner in which it strengthens them. You know, like we'll bring you food if you stay sober. You give them a little extra incentive to stay sober. You know, and and you help those who help themselves, and then that makes the poor stronger. And but it was the job of every ten families to do this. Why do you, why did you do that? Well, it, it's been well known in the past for thousands of years that the only free governments always organized ten families together. Teutons did it. Uh, the Gauls did it. The Romans did it. All all these nations. Now, it wasn't always ten families. Sometimes it was twelve, and sometimes it was eight. <laughs> the number's not a magical thing, but the point is, there's small groups of families. Early Christianity, they didn't have cathedrals and big churches and 5,000 people sitting together. Usually, I mean, there was thousands at Pentecost, but they were mostly outside. <laughs> Where do they meet on a weekly basis? In homes. Well, how many people can you get in a home? Ten families is usually about... As crowded as a home can get. So they don't say a lot in there. Although there are words they use. And we'll get to that. That leads us to believe that the early church was operating by these tens, hundreds and thousands. The same as Israel. And it's so matter of fact. I mean, did Peter wear underwear? It doesn't really tell us, I don't think, anywhere that Peter wore underwear. But we can kind of assume that he did because everybody did. And we know Levites wore underwear because the people were actually to weave the underwear of the Levites. But, of course, those of you who've read our articles on this subject and heard, been listening for a while, realize that it wasn't about BVDs when it said that they were to sew the weave the breeches of the Levites. It was because they didn't have any authority. They couldn't force the contributions of the people. They had authority over what you freely gave them, but they had no other authority to force you to give them. You had to choose daily. I mean, the the original Israelites were all uh, pro-choice. <laughs> they were They were all pro-choice. Like we talked about in the earlier part of the show, most people who are pro, say they're pro-choice, they're not really pro-choice. They don't believe in choice. They want to force people to pay for their abortion. They don't want to give choice to the infant in the womb. They don't believe in choice. They did, that just sounds good. They're, they're all so, socialists don't believe in choice. They believe in forcing their neighbor to contribute to their welfare. So anyway, so he goes on to abstain from the meats offered to idols. So he's being even more specific and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication from which if ye keep yourself, ye shall do well, fare ye well, he goes on to say. But anyway, what he's talking about is the systems in those pagan temples that were social welfare, where they would force the contributions, and therefore the whatever they gave had blood in it, because it wasn't freely given. And it was forced out of the people, strangled. This is the way they spoke. 
This is the way they thought. This is the way their language was constructed. So anyway, there are other things he goes on to say. By giving alms and charity to the needy. And he quotes Acts 4 uh, verses 34 and 35. And certainly they did. They took care of the needy amongst them. Uh, number three, he says, teaching daily in the church or temple. Well, yeah, they did. But the temple had a purpose. It was a system of social welfare. And they taught by doing, by actually taking care of one another. And uh, praying and fasting. Well, a lot of times, in order to have the funds to take care of the needy, you had to do without. Like that guy who wasn't eating his lunch and taking his lunch money and giving it to the old lady who didn't really need it. <laughs> but because they were organized in these tens, hundreds, and thousands, tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, however you want to divide it, they knew who was really needy. They had a knowledge of the people who were in need. They weren't just handing a $20 bill out the window to a guy with a sign. They were actually gathering together. And one of the first things you want to do is get the guy who's just standing around all day with a sign. Get him helping other people. There's something he could be doing. Uh, he, he, he has value. Now, if he doesn't want to do anything, he should go hungry. He should start fasting. You know, I haven't seen any of those guys who look emaciated like the Sadhus of India. <laughs> they all look pretty well off. Anyway, number four. By choosing men of good reputation and ordaining them with the laying on of hands. Ordaining them to do what? To take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. The men of good reputation. This was the job of the church. Because in doing that job, we come face to face with the inadequacies of our own soul. Our lack of virtue. Our lack of patience. Our lack of charity. Our lack of diligence and perseverance. If you don't get your way, do you take off running? Do you abandon everybody else? Or are you diligent in these things of taking care? You know, we got a minister taking care of the elderly right now who's actually showing remarkable improvements as he takes care of the elderly. I've worked with this guy with other guys. You know, I mean, somebody was on dialysis and kidneys shutting down and now all of a sudden that we're taking care of him. He's not on dialysis anymore. He's getting better. Now, is he going to live to 120? Probably not. But where the real discipleship comes is while he gets this extended period of time, he starts dealing with some of the issues of his life that have been forgotten. And he comes face to face with them. And that's a real skill that only comes by way of the Holy Spirit. And it can, yes, it can bring physical healing, but it's the spiritual healing that's important. You're not getting that in most of your churches. You're not getting that spiritual healing. Uh, you're getting feel-good religion. You're getting emotionalism. You're not now. You might get some of it, but it's only because of the sincerity of your heart. Probably not the minister. Now, I can't. I cannot speak for all ministers because I know many men who went into the ministry for some good reasons. But we need to be perfected as saints. We need to know all of the gospel. The whole gospel. Put on the 
whole armor of God. And and that that means the churches are going to have to start doing something drastically different than the modern church is doing. It's not about making a 1,500-man congregation feel good because you gave a really motivational sermon. It's, it's getting people to do righteousness. Jesus Christ did not say, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and the feeling of righteousness. But actually the righteousness of God. Which means you actually have to love one another. You have to sacrifice for one another. You have to fast from hate and judgment and selfishness and avarice. You have to fast from those things. And the only way to fast from selfishness is to be unselfish. So, you pick your men of good reputation and you challenge them to start becoming the ministers of the gospel of the kingdom and start taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. Like the temples of the pagans used to take care of one another through forced contributions. You just do it through free will offerings. There's this huge distinction. There's the Christian conflict between Rome and Christians. They thought you had to do this where those amongst you who had were willingly sharing with those who did not have. And you had a team of ministers who actually could direct the funds, the food, whatever it is, in the most efficient way possible. So that there was no waste. You know, you, you know, you know, if there was leftovers, the leftovers went to good use. I could tell you stories about that, kind of funny stories, but we don't have time. <laughs> Is that when I was in the seminary and our cooks used to make sure there was no waste. <laughs> if, if they served us something that did not taste good and nobody hardly ate it, chances are we would find it in the next meal we were served. <laughs> with maybe some other additions, but we would never get away with that <laughs> Waste not, want not. You learn it the hard way. But anyway, we're going to take a little break again here. Uh, it talks about preaching and performing the miracles and baptizing the people in Acts 8 and 5.13. But we gave you a little insight. We're going to give you some more insight into that and communion when we come back. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And uh, we're talking about uh, getting out of the mire. But in order to understand that, we know that Christ is the answer. We know that his gospel of the kingdom was to set men free. But we need to hear the wholeness of that gospel and put the pieces of that puzzle together. And there has been a concerted effort over the centuries to keep us from knowing the simplicity of the gospel. And so that you get people like this who saying that the Christian church was organized in the same way that it is organized today. And of course, it, that's absolutely not true. 
And we were just going over some of the things that show that it was not true. And one of the things he says is preaching and performing the miracles and baptizing people. Well, Constantine baptized everybody in Milan. But everybody in Milan did not repent because Constantine didn't say repent and get baptized. He just said get baptized. That's modern Christians just get baptized. They haven't repented. They're not thinking differently than the rest of the world. As a matter of fact, they're thinking very much like the Pharisees. Very much like the Sadducees. Uh, who thought that it was okay to get the baptism of Herod, join the social welfare system through the offerings of Corbin. Corbin is actually translated treasury in the New Testament at least once. Uh, but it actually, or not translated, is actually just put into the word Corbin. You know, the Corbin of the Pharisees that makes the word of God to n- none effect. But Corbin is just the Hebrew word for sacrifice. And so what he was actually saying is the sacrifice of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect. Because they were sacrificing. They just had to sacrifice by statutory requirements. Which is why Herod had so much money he could actually build this golden temple. Because he was forcing the contributions and then taking care of the needy. But somehow or other, he got more contributions than he needed. And so he could put a lot of things into gold ornaments and build this spectacular temple that impressed the apostles, but did not impress Christ. Because all those fancy buildings and constructions was not really taking care of the needy. As a matter of fact, it was making the word of God to none effect because... Men were doing no more ought for their parents, saying, I've already given at the temple. Send my parents to the temple. The temple will take care of their needs. I don't need to support my father. I don't need to support my mother. They've got social security from the temple. And so they don't have to do no more. As a matter of fact, if they get sick or they get... You know, where they need help, we can just put them in a convalescent home and send their social security check to the convalescent home in between Medicare and Medicaid and all this stuff. They'll take care of them and we don't have to do no more. Well, we can go visit them and everything and play, uh, dutiful son, you know, but we don't have to do anything because the government will do it for us. That's what the Corbin of the Pharisees was doing. It was making it so you did not honor fatten your mother and your father. You didn't take care of your father and your mother. You had the government do it. And now you don't even take care of your children. You send them to government schools. And the government schools are supported by men who call themselves benefactors, but they're just taking away from your neighbor. And they're threatening neighbors who have no children in school that if you don't contribute this amount of money to the school... We're going to take your house away. You you failed to pay your taxes just a couple of years. We're going to take your whole house away, throw you out on the street, and we're going to sell your house to somebody who will pay for what we want. You see, it's inevitable that 30% of your children are going to be aborted because you've already created a nation of selfish people. Not living according to the name of Christ, who was the one of the most unselfish men. He was rich and he gave all his money away. Uh, he gave his life, laid down his life that you might be free because of the fact that he did this. Pontius Pilate and the Romans actually came to the defense of Christians. Later on, when 
Romans began to become Christians because who who in Rome was becoming Christians? The people on welfare? The people who are collecting a check every month? Are they going to run out and become Christians and start say, well, I'm not going to do this anymore for now. I'm going to take care of myself with faith, hope, and charity and diligent hard work. They're not going to become Christians. They're going to remain pagans. Or they're going to say they're Christians and they're going to go to their local churches and all this stuff and they're going to sing songs and really get worked up for Jesus. But they're not actually going to do what Jesus said. They're not going to stop coveting their neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority. They're going to keep doing that. So who is becoming Christians? Hardworking. Middle class. Industrious. Occasionally some rich men would become Christians. Because it was written on their heart, they would see that this is, this is a way better deal. And they would become Christians. And they would start taking care of one another. We should be teaching families. I mean, where you want to go on a summer vacation, you should come out here. We should build a facility so that you can come out here and uh, take a vacation with your elderly parents. And we talk about how to prepare your home to take care of your elderly parents. How to fix your diet so that your elderly parents live healthier lives. Better lives. I'm not going to tell you. You got to. I'm not going to create food laws. We're going to start showing you and create a network where you can get access to foods that are clean uh, and healthy, not full of carcinogens and poisons and stuff like that. Build a network so you have direct access to the food producers. What's the byproduct of this? The byproduct of this is when. Rome, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire takes place. When Rome falls, you'll have a direct connection with people who produce food. You will know how to produce food yourself. You'll know how to preserve food yourself. You'll know how to take care of one another. And you will be a part of a network of people who are diligent in the ways of righteousness. You couldn't do more for survival in hard times. Not even counting the fact that Christ, God, will hear your prayers. Not because you came together to fix all your problems, because you came together to help other people fix their problems. you got people going around trying to find the perfect congregation with people that are all diligent and hardworking and industrious. No! You want to go out and find sinners <laughs> who want to repent, yeah, Want to change. Now, they're not going to be really good at that change. But you want to find. Because they're going to test your patience. They're going to test your charity. They're going to test your forgiveness. And you're going to come face to face with how Christ-like you really are or aren't. And you can grow in that environment. If you ever did find a congregation of saints, they probably wouldn't let you in. (laughs) I don't know how many times I'm going to tell you that. But get used to it because I'm going to tell you. Don't look for a congregation of saints. Just look for people who will faithfully congregate. You're all addicted to the benefits. You're all going to... Your church meetings are AA meetings. You know, you're aid addicted. You've needed the system of benefactors who exercise authority. And now you're going to break that addiction. Now, everybody comes there, hi, I'm addicted to aid. I'm addicted to benefits. Uh, 
And I want, I want to become a Christian. I want to sober up. And this is the sixth item in this guy's list. Receiving communion. Breaking bread on Sunday, the first day of the week, he says. Well, actually, the early church did uh, have communion on the first day of the week because it wasn't a day of rest. Now, most Christians, most early Christians took a Sabbath, a day of rest. But most Christians in the early church, first century church, most Christians met on Sunday. Why? Because the church had a job. And that job was the communion. They didn't just come out with little crumbs of bread and stick them on your tongue. They came out with sacks of bread. And those who couldn't make it to the meeting, they sent diaconuses out into the streets with sacks of bread to make sure they had enough bread to get them through that week to the elderly, to the crippled, to the needy of their society. And that was communion. That was the Eucharist of Christ. Thanksgiving. Those that had shared with those that did not have enough. And the ministers were to share in a way that strengthened the poor. If someone didn't have a job, they tried to find work for them. Because they knew that idleness was the devil's workshop. Idle hands. So this is, this is the difference between the modern church, who's playing at church, who's playing at believing in Jesus Christ, who are not seeking the kingdom of God in his righteousness, but seeking self-righteousness in apostate religion. Now, amongst every one of those churches, you know, all these churches, there are always some real Christians. They're the ones doing all the work. They're the ones making all the sacrifice. They're the dutiful ones. Uh, the other guys just show up to feel good. And yeah, how do you get rid of those guys? Well, you, you bring in the Holy Spirit. Now, bringing in the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to cover that in this show. There's enough time. But by seeking the kingdom, seeking this righteous way to live and take care of one another, you, you begin to clean out a place in your own personal fleshy temple where the Holy Spirit can enter in. And so, it says, by appointing elders in every church and strengthening the churches. He quotes Acts 14 and Acts 15, 41. But, one of the things I point out to people, elders, uh, presbyters, uh, are elders. They're, they're the head of families. It's not an office. They are the elders of a family. And it's they who gather together, and therefore their family gathers together with them in a free assembly. These are the elders. But there is an actual job of the church. I mean, you got to remember that. The church, there was all kinds of social welfare around. All over Rome, 127 different countries they had social welfare. They were underwritten by temples like the Temple at Ephesus. They had a system of birth registrations that eventually became mandatory under Marcus Aurelius. And uh, they were kept... Uh, in different uh, subsidiary temples, but basically for Rome they were kept in the Temple of Saturn, uh, which is their Bureau of Vital Statistics, so that they would know that this is the son of so-and-so, and uh, so-and-so died, and so therefore we have to take care of this son, because it's part of the benefits. But we also, when he reaches the age of majority, he's going to have to sacrifice on the temple, he's going to have to pay in too, and we're going to have this treasury that's full, this Corbin treasury that's full of money 
and funds so that we can take care of the needy. And that's one way to do it. And until John the Baptist, most men did it that way at that particular time in history. But John the Baptist said, no, do it through faith, hope, and charity and, and loving one another. Christ said the same. The apostles said the same. And the early church did it in pure religion, like James is saying. Your church is not doing that. Your church is going to Rome and saying to the benefactors who exercise authority, the men who call themselves benefactors, give me, give me, give me. And some of them say, give me, give me, give me a lot. So anyway, I've got a series of questions here that was put to me by somebody in the network. And I've given them a quick response. But I'm going to be addressing that in the rest of this show. These questions from the book, Thy Kingdom Comes. And uh, they had certain questions about it. And they wanted more uh, verses in the Bible that would prove what I'm saying. And there are some more verses. And I can probably go through and find them all. But I only give you so much. And I, I condense all these books down. So that you get enough to see. But you only really see by the Holy Spirit. And I, I believe this person wants these extra quotes because they're trying to convince other people. The fact is, is, I want them to be convinced or convicted by the Holy Spirit. So I'm only going to give them so much. And then they're going to have to ask the Holy Spirit, what do they think? And, and really, the proof is in the fruit. You know, because people want absolute proof that they can't uh, pray to benefactors who exercise authority. They can't make the state their father. They want absolute proof before they give up anything. (laughs) Well, you may be waiting too long. uh, Because you're going to find yourself between a rock and a hard place. And then you're all going to want to be Christians and join the network. But it'll be too late. You know, Jesus warned you about this, the whole foolish virgin thing. Oh, we're virgins. We don't take from those benefits and we're separate, but we're not, you know, again, it says it's, it's, it's not enough to stop being covetous. You have to start being charitable. You see, because you haven't turned love into an action word. You just say, well, I'm not going to covet their benefits. That's not seeking the kingdom and the righteousness. That's just seeking to be out of that system. You know, a lot of the people who do that, they don't pay taxes on the money they earn. But they don't tithe to an international network of charity. To a system of tens, hundreds, and thousands. Which the early church clearly did from history. You don't find a great deal in the Bible. You do find something in the Bible that leads us to believe that. We'll get to that. But you're not going to find a great deal of evidence because you're not going to find a great deal of evidence that Peter wore underwear. But he probably did because they did in those days. Undergarments. Because they took off their cloaks and everything. Um, and they had undergarments. And you have to remember that these, you know, Barnabas, who was Hoses, he was a Levite. And the people were to sew his breeches. So he probably wore underwear. But they don't ever talk about it in the Bible but it just, it's common sense. You know, because the Levites wore, he was a Levite, and so chances are he wore him. <laughs> now it seems kind of silly that I'm talking about their underwear and all this stuff. But the point is, is they're not going to tell you everything because some things are just common knowledge and sense, and it's a matter of history. 
And that we give you a lot of history without making the book more than 144 pages. So that you can see. We give you enough so you can see. But if you don't want to see, there's no matter how many facts I give you. So anyway, I wrote in Thy Kingdom Come. It says, The Levites had replaced the firstborn of the nation as a public servant to keep the people from the sin of the golden calf. And we'll talk about that in a second. And the common purse of uh, national banking. They were to serve the tents of the congregation. Uh, and that, that's in italics. Tents of the congregation. Because you'll see the tabernacles of the congregation. That's a phrase commonly seen in the Bible. And every time people see it, they think they're talking about the tabernacle. The big tabernacle. which was, It's just the word for tent. And so the tents of the congregation is the tents of everybody. Because we're all tabernacles of the Holy Spirit. Every family is the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. Every individual in that family is part of that tabernacle. And that congregation comes together. This is the tents of the congregation. The tabernacles of the congregation. Yeah, they did have one big tabernacle. And that one big tabernacle, there was some work to be done in it. But it didn't take a whole tribe to handle that one tent. So where was the rest of the tribe? Now, every city had lands in common that belonged to the Levites. The Levites were in every town. What were they doing in there? There's no big giant tabernacle in every town. Why are they there? Because they're serving the tents of the congregations, of the people. And the people were organizing and, and picking men, one in ten, to be their, whether well, it talks about captains, but actually there's there's two words, there's Shem Resh Resh, which they call Sar, and there's Shem Resh. And when they're talking about finding these captains, they're not talking about finding men to rule over them. They didn't do that until they rejected God. And wanted to have a king rule over them. And the king was appointing men to rule over. You know the lieutenants and captains. Over tens, hundreds and thousands. Fifties and hundreds and thousands. But they actually ruled over the people. And forced. Eventually. They forced the contributions of the people. And they took and took and took and took and took and took. And And when Saul forced the first contribution of the people. Samuel comes and says. You've done this foolish thing and because of that your kingdom will not stand. So any of you who force, desire to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare, your government will collapse. Because this is built into nature. You know, just like all the Europeans, 30% of all the pregnancies end in abortion. They took away the right to life of those children in their daughter's wombs. And now their daughters are being raped by the thousands. And uh, and their lives are being threatened. And, and the, the people are being threatened by an invading army. Literally an invading fifth column army. That is raping and pillaging their countries. And it's going to get way worse. Way worse. Than what you see. Because... You have sown the wind. And now you're reaping the whirlwind. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can't change that. You can change where you stand. 
in relationship to that. Which means you have to repent and change your thinking. Because you've all gone the way of the pig and the dog. And been entangled again in the elements of the world. You've all returned to Babylon and Egypt and the systems of Rome. So anyway, I, I talk about uh, they were to serve the tents of the congregation, strengthen them as individuals while unifying them as one nation. In this process, they were required as an alternative to Babylon, Egypt, or Roman systems, Roman type systems, to help them be fruitful and prosperous. Keeping each family strong and prosperous was a practical duty of the minister who served that family. If he serves ten families and they all become uh, very fruitful, uh, produce, uh, successful, he's going to be successful because they will tie to him. His strength is their strength. Their strength is his strength. Uh, and so he, everything he's going to do is going to try to help them become successful. And he is not. He's going to bind them together with every other congregation he can. And he binds them by charity and hope that they honor that charity back to them. Because there are things that is beyond the scope of a local congregation. Like invasion, fires, famines. You wanted real... This is your social insurance. Because when you were prospering, you shared with the people of Galatia, or Corinth, or Ephesus, or Syria. Those people, when you were not prospering, were going to share with you. That's hope. You're hoping they will. So you're binding people together with a system of charity. So, home church is great. But a home church that's not thinking kingdom is an isolated Puss pocket <laughs> of selfishness. <laughs> they have to connect, if they're going to think kingdom, they will, with other congregations. And care about those other congregations as much as they care about themselves. That That's the way it works. I mean, that's just common sense. I mean, you picture it any other way. It can't work any other way. To help them be fruitful and prosper in their own congregations, they have to be concerned about other congregations. And if you really do that, you can help people start businesses, you can help people become successes, you can help people in their farming enterprises. You know, I know a guy who went organic, he was one of the first guys to go organic that I know of in Oregon, and, and he based it on biblical teachings. He said, I almost starved. It was so hard to make that changeover. Now he helps other people do it all the time. And he actually is forming a network. Not as uniform and as disciplined as the early church. But that's where we got to go. And we don't have a lot of time to do it. So repent and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless.
You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.